2: Welcome to DJ Simulation. Simulationista Sup. You're here with Janice Pelicanis and
1: And Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice.
2: Sup, Dan. We have a very special guest.
1: I can see.
2: (laughs) I love so much. She is my office mate. So proud to say.
1: And she's long been my hero. (laughs)
2: Roxanne Gardner, thank you for joining us. She's the director of our clinical programs.
1: She is an obstetrician-gynecologist.
2: She is also the the senior director of our fellowship program. (laughs) She is uh, the classy, smart, brainy, beautiful person here at CMS.
1: And she, every year, gets the award for the best-dressed
2: Roxanne, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for so that really fun you. introduction.
1: <laughs> so Roxanne, I know that you know I've been with you a long time when you first started working in simulation, and you're you're one of the rare people in the world who has dedicated herself to education quite fully, and you had an active career as an obstetrician gynecologist, which now is some occasional clinic work, I believe. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners, if you would, about that transition, especially what, what made you so passionate about education?
0: Oh, wow. I'd have to say I've always been in love with learning, way back to kindergarten. I just loved going to kindergarten, which is really funny. You know, this is a reflection, spontaneous, but I have to say, it it really goes back to that. I've always just enjoyed learning and being a student and being in class and being with people and being with really good teachers. And, you know, I've had my share of of those who weren't. And yet it didn't completely turn me off of learning. It just made me search harder for better teachers.
1: Were you one of those toddlers who gathered all your friends and played teacher, played school, and you were the teacher? (laughs)
0: I don't think I can go back to my toddler years, but I can say very clearly my memories of being scolded in kindergarten for running around to my colleagues and telling them the answers to (laughs) questions. I'd get in trouble all the time for telling the kids the answers. I was also the kid that never wanted to take a nap, because in those days you 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 were asked to take a nap, and I just hated taking naps. <laughs> I just wanted to be awake. I was afraid I'd miss something. They started threatening me with, well, you can't have macaroni and cheese for lunch. And it didn't bother me because I hated macaroni and cheese.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they would threaten me with, you can't have this, you can't have that. And I'd say, so what?
1: I reckon you still hate to take naps.
2: I do. And, and that you I still do. hate macaroni and cheese. No, I love macaroni <laughs> and cheese, <laughs> especially lobster. Macaroni and cheese.
1: <laughs> yeah, it depends uh, on what kind of cheese. But. Yeah. So, Rox, continue with your change from a full time clinician to a almost full-time educator.
0: In some ways, life has really interesting twists and turns, and you have to make lemonade out of lemons. So I would say that I was moving along in a active OBGYN general practice primarily focused in community health centers and working with a very diverse and vulnerable set of, of women going through childbirth or having GYN problems. And I transitioned from working at the Beth Israel, where I would spent most of my professional life at that point in 99, to the Brigham and joined the obstetrical team there and under the direction at least from the OB part of uh, uh, David Acker, who was my one of my leaders when I was at City Hospital uh, as a medical student. So it was really an interesting journey to that point. And in two thousand. On uh, tax day, I had a spontaneous tension pneumothorax. It started actually as a, t- as a spontaneous pneumothorax, but then over the next few days, because, of course, I didn't recognize how sick I was and didn't seek help until it was a tension pneumothorax. <laughs> uh, anyways, that completely changed my life. So, um, And the reason that particular event, it was the spark that changed my life. But what was... Really, the instigator for changing my life is the the various surgical issues that happened to me in the aftermath of that. So it took a while for my lung to return to full inflation, which was really odd, because usually they go back up pretty quickly. And then um, I was doing okay in my recovery, and then my lung started to recollapse, which I knew it could. And... The last thing I wanted was another chest tube, and I'd had two already by then, and two at the same time is really no fun. I was home trying to nurse along my collapsed, partially collapsed lung at that point. I started doing all kinds of research online, and I realized that in the UK, they take a, a little bit more of a conservative approach to a recurrent pneumothorax. So I thought, well, you know, I've got some evidence here. I can sort of see how this goes. Anyways, the long and the short of it is that I required a couple of surgeries, and the first surgery gave me some nerve damage in my chest wall. So I was really down and out for a while. So I found some ways to do uh, work online, and I worked with some faculty from the Harvard Medical School who put out a publication, and it was an online uh, educational platform. So I would answer the questions. So ask the doctor. So a question would come in, and I would formulate an answer, and I would uh, do the research and then come up with, with sort my sort of response. like the
1: Ann Landers of medicine. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I was so that kept me sane. That kept me like you know okay I'm relevant. I'm doing something. Out of the blue, I got an email from a good friend of mine who I went to medical school with, Alan Frankel. And Alan Frankel was then he was an anesthesiologist. He was based at Newton Wellesley Hospital. Through an interesting turn of events, he experienced in his hospital he ended up becoming the director of patient safety. And then shortly thereafter, or soon thereafter, he was appointed director of patient safety for all of Partners. So he had a lot of projects going on that are patient safety research related. And that's how I got involved with uh, working with David Bates and began to get to know him and his team that would meet. They would convene on a monthly basis and everyone would talk about their research. So one day Alan said, you know, I need to go over to the Center for Medical Simulation and talk to Jeff Cooper. Do you want to come along? Um, Because by that time, I was more ambulatory. And I said, what the heck is the Center for Medical Simulation, and who is Jeff Cooper? (laughs) So he goes, oh, well, you'll see. He brought me over, and uh, that's when I first met your, your colleagues. When I was observing what was going on and learning about everything that you'd been doing, I just got insanely jealous because... I couldn't believe that in our obstetrical arena, we had never had a line of sight towards what was going on at the Center for Medical Simulation and how relevant that would be. I always say to Alan, it's his misfortune that he introduced me to Jeff because I <laughs> just became so in love with you know simulation-based education that I ended up devoting all my energy pretty much towards that. And I finished up some of the patient safety projects that I was working with him on. You know, and things went to publication, but at that point, I'd pretty much put my hat in the ring for simulation.
1: I remember uh, working with you and your colleague Tony Walzer, mm-hmm. uh, also an obstetrician who left her practice to do simulation, and uh, you and her and I were the team that worked together to build the first tetrical simulation courses. Exactly. And, and the thing that struck me about you folks was how much you like to talk about sex. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I called uh, us, our profession is about sex, the use and abuse of it. That actually was my tagline. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> so a couple of potty mouths and I uh, worked together to, to work on OB courses. And then the second thing that struck me was how incredibly frightening it must have been to be an obstetrician because the bad things that happen were beyond my imagination Mm. having you know no clinical background in obstetrics i just didn't know about all the bad things that can happen and how the field is you know so happy and wonderful and the birth of children has got to be a huge thrill even for the for the practitioner, but the terror of the bad things that can go wrong is, uh, you know, you know, gave me nightmare. As an obstetrician, like how how did you, how did you see that, and how did you see the role of teaching people how to, you know, perform better and during these crises? How how did that hang together for you?
0: As a resident in my day, wasn't too far off from exactly see one, do one, teach one. We had a lot more responsibility, I think, because we were on call a lot more, and attendings would stay home until you know it was really imperative that they come in. Um, some would come in sooner than others, so we had much more exposure to a wide range of events and relying on our our senior uh, residents to teach us, our chief residents to teach us and walk us through things. And not only that, but women in my day, even women would. Deliver vaginally and stay in the hospital for three days. Mm -hmm. And if you had a cesarean section, you would stay in the hospital afterwards for five days. And so you had a a greater chance of seeing the things that can happen in the aftermath of Mm -hmm. delivering, which you might not see until they go home and come back. So you don't actually see the deterioration and pick up on it the way that we learned how to. But be that as it may, I I think it never struck me as the best way to learn Mm -hmm. on our patients. So for me, simulation is a way to to bring high-acuity, low-frequency event to life and have an opportunity to, to at least be exposed and practice what you would do to respond to that situation and how you would manage that or how you would conduct that conversation. I mean, we never had... I don't remember ever having a practice conversation of informed consent. I just watched my attendings give an informed consent, and then I just learned to give it. But nobody ever really critiqued me on how I obtained an informed consent. I certainly never was taught how to apologize for any errors that I might have committed. And I certainly saw a lot of errors in my time, both as a resident and and later on, you know, colleagues or myself as as an attending. For me, it just seemed like such a no-brainer when I was at the first few times I went to CMS, like, why, why haven't we been doing this for many, many years instead of just now hearing about it and starting in on it? And yet, you know, when you think back, there were, were, there were things that I did to teach myself how to do things better that were simulations. So many of us as residents would tie sutures on our drawstring of our scrub pants, and we would just practice tying knots without looking. So just training your hands for practice one of our attendings would get some chickens and practice putting sutures in chickens i never did that but uh, some of the other residents got got a chance to do that using the electrocautery device sometimes we'd use chickens, sometimes we we'd use oranges so there were certain ways that we would do simulation but it was never really called that i viewed myself as in obgyn as an educator anyways because when you're with when you're with patients you're always having to explain something or talk to them about, you know, what to do if this, if that. A large part of what we do is is education. It's patient education in our visits.
1: One of the things that I'm most proud of in my career is having been part of the OBGYN simulations because I could never get over how how it really caught on with your colleagues. I kind of expected this this uh uh resistance that I had seen in some of the surgical specialties and in anesthesiology to doing simulation. Even though the the cases were horrible complications, they were just so positive. Mm-hmm. That 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 that's, you know, really one of my most kind of memorable things about working on that program and working with you and and tony on it
2: roxanne i love hearing the history i just feel like you have this great spirit of inquiry and you're just constantly out researching what's new out there and bringing it back to us and i get you know a little message from you forwards from twitter and um, all <laughs> sorts of different platforms i've noticed You've been doing that more the last, I don't know, three years or so. And so I'm thinking, because to me, you are really at the edge of innovation when it comes to technology and education, I'm thinking that it's just kind of boomed the last three years, and I'm seeing you take kind of new directions within our organization in virtual reality and that sort of thing. And so I'm just wondering, your like I love hearing the history of how you came here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your trajectory from that point all the way to where we are today and, and where you see us going.
0: Right around the time that I was getting to know CMS and the folks um, and getting involved with developing the OB simulation course, I had applied for a PhD program at the School of Public Health at Harvard. I had set up that in motion, and that was sort of like my fallback, like if I wasn't going to be able to go into practice and I was going to remain within patient safety and doing research that, well, I might as well get a PhD and challenge myself and and put my feet to the fire. So I had already started that ball rolling. My first classes actually started in 2003 because I had a setback uh, and had another surgery in 2002. So I couldn't start with the cohort then, but I picked up in 2003. The importance of that is that as I tried to figure out what I wanted to do for my my dissertation, I realized that I had a really golden opportunity to put together patient safety and simulation for OBGYN. So my dissertation ended up being titled Patient Safety and Simulation in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And to the best of my knowledge, nobody had ever written on that. So it was a whole brand new area. And that really, I think, helped me tremendously because it pushed me to look back historically to see what had been done. So I gathered that knowledge, and um, it helped me to appreciate, Dan knows this uh, as well, if not better than me, that simulation has very, very deep roots, and especially in obstetrics, there were some uh, then barbers who were the surgeons and therefore the deliverers in in London in like the 1700s. And they even described their own part-task trainers. They called mm-hmm. them phantoms. And they were made out of different, you know, materials like baskets or, you know, they'd, we have, have them woven together or they'd actually use glassware to simulate a torso and a, put a doll there so you could see the baby moving through the uterus. Anyways, and then there was some work in France. Uh, Madame de Coudre, as you know, mm-hmm. Janice, uh, Mary talks about a lot. And she created a whole set of of part test trainers, as it were, phantoms, that were obstetrical pelvises with babies, gravid, you know, gravid uh, pelvis. And then a whole series of babies that ranged from small fetuses to term-size infants and placentas. And she would teach out in the countryside uh, various home birth attendees or home midwives how to manage some of the complications because there was just not enough surgical attendees to rescue women in times of trouble. So it, that is just fascinating, and there's still a museum to show
2: some of her remaining trainers. So you looked into all of this yeah. as you were studying your PhD? Yeah. and then And then from there, how did you... Bring that to simulation. and
0: When you do a PhD, you often are given a choice of writing one big, huge
2: opus, right. or, yeah. or you can uh,
0: write three separate research projects and then have them either published or publishable, or have most of them published by the time you, you finish your dissertation. So I chose the three-paper route. And so one of my uh, papers was about the history of simulation and OBGYN up to that point. And then the next paper was really revolved around the course that Dan and Tony and I uh, and others at CMS developed on OB crisis resource management. Mm-hmm. And so we had done some surveys of some of the attendees and had gathered uh, information and we wrote this paper together that was published and it, it gave a little, not a little, it gave a lot of credit to our malpractice insurer for having. The faith to support this sort of activity in light of no actual evidence that it was going to do anything at that point other than the what they had seen initially with, with anesthesia, what had happened in anesthesia, that their malpractice rates had uh, seemed to decline, claims rates had seemed to d- decline uh, for those who had voluntarily, voluntarily taken their CRM courses versus those cohort who did not.
2: And the third paper was... And
0: the third paper uh, was about uh, evaluating teamwork behaviors and using a tool that Alan Frankel and I and another colleague Laura Maynard, designed uh, an observational tool to assess teamwork behaviors. So we took uh, in, and again, it has a lot to do with the work that I did at C- at CMS. So we had a particular scenario that we ran in our courses, and it ran over three years, so there were people, or participants, learners, who would undertake to manage this specific case, and then I had uh, this body of cases, different teams managing the same scenario, and then I recruited some raters, so I learned a little bit about rater training and how important it is to train your raters and to get reliability between the raters, and my colleagues, uh, May P. and Smith and Tony Walzer, and Rebecca Meinhart and I were the Raiders. And so point. I was able to to write about that experience, you know, that, that
2: project. So this is so interesting because I feel like we could spend months listening to, <laughs> to, to just how you've come to where you've been. And so it sounds like you had this great clinical experience. You've always been this learner. You've had this, you've had, you know, a life of clinical experience, realized Using that, that you can offer better education, and then you go into kind of formal PhD work that, that allowed you to really focus and put all your thoughts together. And and um,
0: CMS was my learning lab. And really, CMS I mean, is I didn't, I lab. didn't realize that. I mean, it all came together. It wasn't something that I thought out ahead,
2: uh-huh. but it just
0: just beautifully came together.
2: And so now you're, you're heading into this, like, virtual world. And I'm thinking, like, I, I guess I can fill in the gaps between then and now that everything that you've learned is now pushing you into thinking how to apply it forward. Well, there's the another thing. Okay. <laughs> there's another
0: step to take. So a few years back, I was asked to take on the role of the director of the simulation fellowship and international scholars program that we had. Uh-huh. And it wasn't really formalized as such. Jeff Cooper had always had an open mind for having people come and spend time with us. And so I was able to sort of take what he did and and to have it more formalized. And the first group of people that I had under my wing were from Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Academy of Medicine Fellows, and it uh-huh. was just boom, 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 boom. There was quite a number of them that I had to take care of. And it struck me that I needed more knowledge, skills, and ability in being an educator of adults. More than just everything I had just gathered on the way, I needed more formal training. So I went into the program at MGHIHP, Mass, uh, Mass General Hospitals Institute for Health Professions. They have a master's in health professions education. Yeah. And it was very attractive because it's a two-year program. Most of it is online. And there are some face-to-face experiences that you have over the course of the two years. And fortunately, I got credit for being able to have taken the CMS instructor course in the past, plus the advanced instructor course. Those were added to the credits that I needed for my degree. I used my, for my practicum, I just taught and received feedback here at CMS. So it was, it It was really attractive from so many different perspectives because it was close, all the people, all my work I could do here. It gave me a much better understanding about curriculum design, being more mindful of the various technologies, and I I actually credit that course, that that coursework, for making me more mindful about the different uh, instructional design techniques and educational technologies that you can bring to bear
2: and integrate into your classroom. Hmm. So the benefits of being a lifelong learner (laughs) by Roxanne Gardner. (laughs) So Roxanne, I love hearing about your experience with IHP and how it made you think of all the other technologies that exist and how we could bring that to education here in simulation and your personal education with obstetrics and that sort of thing. And I, I have just been watching walls being built and projectors onto these walls that have been being built. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure, Janice. The impetus for really thinking about this in a serious way was the MJHIHP Master's Program course, Technology and Education. And we covered a wide range of technologies, of, of which virtual reality was one of them. And I always felt like yourself, that we should be diversifying ourselves in that fashion. What happened was that I also run the Boston simulation community meetings that CMS hosts. In those, uh, an individual by the name of Fernando Salvetti came across this meeting, and he reached out to me, and he wondered if he could come here and present and talk about his virtual environment that he was involved in in helping to create in, in Italy. And I thought, well, that's, that's wonderful. And I said, I, you know, we, we don't have a stipend or honorarium. So, y- you know, anytime you're in the neighborhood, we could do that. Or if you want to Skype, we could have you featured as a presenter on Skype. Lo and behold, he came and he presented. And thereafter, he asked us if, as an o- organization, we would like to pilot his virtual environment system. Mm-hmm. And I said, Yes. <laughs> And convince CMS to say yes as well. And so he and his group set up the virtual environment that we have. So there's two interactive walls where you can actually touch and make things happen. And then a third wall that is more of a screen-based, typical, you know, movie projector type setup. I recently traveled to Milan where he has his original setup. And it's in a much bigger room. It's probably about two and a half times the size of the area that we have. And he has three interactive walls that are the entire walls. It's just really amazing. So having seen that, I really am jealous that we don't have that. But be that as it may, we were in a position with our OB course that we had to develop a new curriculum. So I was determined to figure out a way to pilot the use of that environment mm-hmm. in in very baby steps because i'm so new to virtual reality mixed reality however you want to call it but these environments uh, is not something that i play with i'm not a gamer <laughs> and fortunately most of my uh, ob colleagues who come here as learners they're not really big into gaming and so they've been a, a little timid when coming into the virtual reality environment but the way i've incorporated it is I've positioned it as a a way for uh, one to do some mastery learning deliberate practice activities. And we are teaching this approach uh, to organizing a team, which we hope is a lower cognition challenging approach, which is called name, claim, aim. So you name the situation or the diagnosis if you know it. You claim the different roles, establish your event manager, make sure they say it clearly and crisply, and then you aim the team towards whatever treatment, whether it's a known diagnosis or a set of physical parameters that you need to correct. And so with this virtual reality environment, we have these different vignettes that some are clinical challenging uh, crisis situations some are environmentally challenging not necessarily clinically challenging environmental challenges that could affect the hospital or you as an individual or you in your office practice and in smaller teams units of two uh, a pair has to be involved in the vignette that they select from a an anonymous uh, group of choices and uh, they have to name claim aim and When they name, claim, and aim, they can assign roles to all the different other people who are in that particular cohort of uh, learners. So it's been really interesting, and in one of them, we have a scene where Mr. Bean is standing next to a man on the sidewalk, and the man collapses, and Mr. Uh Bean (laughs) doesn't know what to do. And one of our learners was so into it when they were doing their name, claim, aim, that he went to the floor... And there's no mannequin on the floor. There's nothing on the floor. But he was doing chest compressions <laughs> on the person who had collapsed.
2: I <laughs> loved
1: it. I loved just it. How some people can
2: <laughs> take a bag of potatoes and <laughs> just think that they're a mannequin. Exactly. Some people just can't believe anything you put in front of them.
0: Yeah. So it's baby steps. And, you know, I'm hoping that we, we have a series of things that we're going to be collaborated on with, with Fernando and his team and learning as we go.
1: Roxanne, I I see you working with the fellows and I'm, you know, see the connection that you have with them and hearing this story about what generates your, your enthusiasm. I'm just really curious, do you tell them about your journey or, or how do you, you know, get them as excited as you are about education?
2: Or maybe they come to us already excited. Yeah, I think there's
1: keep propelling it.
0: Yeah, there's a certain when somebody reaches out and says that they want information about our fellowship. I mean, I've I've no idea who they are. They usually don't provide a CV right up front. And some of them might tell you in one or two sentences a little bit about themselves, but most of them don't. So I always make a an arrangement to meet with them by video conference. And I much prefer video conference because then, you know, I can see them, they can see me. Sometimes it, it works out that we just have to talk without a video. but as it may, sometimes my story I share with them if if they're inquisitive as to well how did you how did you do it how did you get to where you are I don't necessarily volunteer that right up front but certainly if they end up coming here to CMS I meet with the fellows on a fairly regular basis and we just get to talking and it usually comes out in some form or fashion. I usually have fellowship time with Jeff Cooper and or Dan Raymer, as Dan knows. And, you know, I'll have, I'll often have Jeff tell his story and the story of CMS and patient safety. And I'll have Dan talk about his history and story. And um, and
2: now you should be talking about your own. Treatment. I
0: guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make it a point of sharing my story, it's but such a it, good one, though. It, it probably comes out more often than not. I love being with the fellows. I think I owe them as, uh, as a representative of CMS to ensure that they are having the best of experiences here, that they can garner the wealth of information and knowledge from all of the different faculty members and from experiences that we can provide or share with them in our various institutions. So, you know, Dan often leads the MGHOR teamwork course, and I love to have the fellows uh, go with them either onesie by onesies or twosies to help um Dan run the course or to to watch him debrief or co debrief if they are you know have gotten to that point where they're confident. I take them over to, to Stratus at uh, the Brigham, get them involved with OB drills if that's appropriate or in the timing is right. And I think Damien now, Damien Shield, who's our senior director of our Institute, Institute. for Medical Simulation, he uh works as an emergency physician at uh, the Brigham, but he also uh, ventures over to Stratus from time to time. So he'll take some some fellows over there too. Mm -hmm. Also, I I don't take all the credit for getting, if you see the fellows passionate about learning, I think that I have to give credit to every one of my colleagues here who are passionate about learning. And I think that fellows see that all of us are really curious and interested and pushing ourselves and trying to get better. And I think that can't help but rub off on them.
2: I what I really love about hearing your story is you know, how it can apply to our listeners. I think you're highlighting some pieces of the puzzle for me as to you know, how do you become this lifelong learner and, and contribute to the field of simulation. And it's, it's starting off just loving education and learning. And I think everyone that's in this field has that. Yeah. The second thing is you're using all of your past experience and applying it and developing things based on your past and current experience, because you still work clinically. The third is I think you position yourself to be in to be doing work that forces you to get to know what's out there, like your PhD and um, what you did with IHP. And also, being a director of fellows we get people from all over the world that are focused on totally different things, and we learn from them, too, mm-hmm. the variety of what exists out there. And so I think you, just from your spirit of inquiry, you just naturally get attracted to things that put you in the position of learning more about the things that you love. And, and so I think if everybody could, could do what you do, we'd all be in a great place with Simulation and what we know in the field,
1: Janice. I think that we should write a book about people's <laughs> journey. Yeah, uh, oh, well, into I simulation. To do that. Fascinating story, you know, from collapsed lung to <laughs> uh, to superstar uh, simulation educator. That's that's a cool story. So I think we should write a book. I think I think you should write it, and I'll take credit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think there's probably a lot of stories like that, that maybe not involved a collapsed lung, but some kind of crazy, (laughs) quirky turn in life.
1: There's no question that uh, uh, there are lots of, you know, interesting transition into what, you know, is a fairly new, young field Mm -hmm. with lots of a breadth to it that, you know, you can approach as a clinician as an educator as a patient safety person as a someone who likes to play with dolls Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, it's just really uh (laughs) really really wide variety yeah well thank you Roxanne so much for for uh for speaking with us and inspiring uh us and our listeners hopefully yeah
0: okay well thank you for being yourselves and for <laughs> inspiring me and being my role models.
2: So, <laughs> lifelong learner, Ryan Rox- Gardner, <laughs> rock star.
0: <laughs> DJ Simulationistas, sup! is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedicine.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.